it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You. My guardian angel. Take my soul of fire. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer. Esoteric Hollywood is where I deconstruct the deeper messages, symbols, and predictive programming subtexts that underlie modern film. In this show, we will be interviewing artists, experts, and numerous people in media fields. And this will all be based on my years of research in comparative religion, propaganda, psychological warfare, secret societies, and espionage. Esoteric Hollywood decodes the biggest movies in an unparalleled way, from the classics of the silver screen to today's blockbusters. Learn to watch film with completely new eyes as we enter esoteric Hollywood. Fights and initiates. I'm your hierophant of Hollywood for this evening. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer from jaysanalysis.com. Today we're going to be talking again about Stanley Kubrick and his monumental, some consider the best film ever, 2001 A Space Odyssey. We're going to look at all the different levels to which I think this movie is telling us something beyond what most people probably thought. There's this obvious evolutionary theme, but I think it's going to show us something much deeper than that. We're going to get into hardcore alchemy and esotericism. Before I go, I want to mention that the opening song you heard that was Ariel Electron, Holig Speis, and Thierry Goethe. And their album is Kore Cosmu, and you can find that at spies.tv, where you can purchase that excellent album. I, I've been listening to it quite a bit lately. It's relatively new, so if you like that theme, then uh, check their stuff out. So 2001 A Space Odyssey is based on Arthur C. Clarke's concurrently written science fiction novel, and it was a visual and technical accomplishment for its time, certainly unparalleled. You know, at the at the era uh, that this is this is coming out in the late '60s, and 
I think that not only were the technical advances monumental, but it's also uniquely philosophical. There haven't been that many hardcore philosophical films in this way. So prior to 2001, most science fiction had been relatively cartoonish, I think we could say. We could think of something like Disney's Black Hole, right? With little attention to esoteric and alchemical themes, aside from, again, maybe scant instances in the in the realm of science fiction. And this is precisely what 2001 is. It's an alchemical-slash-philosophical presentation of the supposed evolutionary ascent of man from primordial animalistic ape into reborn star child in an initiatory process that purports to say unfold through aeons of brute meaningless time culminating in a series of revelations associated with stellar alignments that quote awaken a new stage in humanity's process along the way Kubrick includes a host of ideas themes that uh, I'm going to explore, again, pretty in-depth, so strap yourself in, hold on, you're going to get deep in this one. I hope you're in the mood to get deep. We don't stay on the surface here at Esoteric Hollywood. Now, my thesis is this. 2001, uh, Space Odyssey, is about space. Now you're thinking, duh, Jay, you're such a retard. We know that. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about outer space. That's part of it. But I'm talking about space, planar space, pointed and linear space in a geometric sense. The transcending of that limitation of form that we find in spatial relations into the infinite and beyond that is what 2001 a space odyssey is about and that's what we're going to look at now i've written i've written on this film before many many years ago when i was in my 20s much more naive on a lot of these topics than i am hopefully now so i rewrote a lengthy piece on this and if you're interested in what you're hearing here I would encourage you to go to jasonalysis.com and check out my 2001 an alchemical spatial odyssey piece that really breaks this down in depth but if we think about that opening sequence we witness a few crucial elements in this film we see a planetary alignment and we see monkeys and we see monoliths. Moon, monkeys, monoliths. The M's of... The M's of... Uh, well, we could just say the M's... The, the Kubrick likes the M's, right? He's a fan of the M&M's. Uh, but uh, not uh, the nasty high fructose corn syrup candy. The M's of moons, monkeys, and monoliths. And the setting for these monkeys and the monolith is a dry, dusty landscape of sparse vegetation, tribes of apes shown in confrontation over a watering hole and tribal, primal tension. The planetary alignment then signifies, I think, 
this new era, this new aeon for the emergence of man, so-called, or, quote, consciousness, prior to this primal and savage forces, survival of the fittest, supposedly, to speak in Darwinian terms, is what rules. And I think Kubrick's going to tell us that this survival of the fittest notion still rules in the affairs of men. The form, as I mentioned before, of the obelisk that will suddenly appear is what we need to take note of because the advent of the monolith is composed of a wholly other angular, sleek solidity in a, in a geometric, obviously designed sense. And what we see elsewhere in the ape landscape is random, the randomness of nature, right? So the geological formations that make up the ape's environment is starkly contrasted to the angular form and uh, cubicle nature of the monolith. And that's important because Kubrick is showing us that this is a higher level of design, a higher level of, of order that is behind this mysterious monolith structure. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have seen Wiedner's documentary on 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I enjoyed Wiedner's analysis, but I take a somewhat different approach than, than Wiedner does to the film. I think he's right about the alchemical aspects, and uh, my analysis I did, I did record, or I did write many years ago. So I've updated mine, and I, I do give credence to Wiedner where I think it's appropriate. Because Wiener does talk about this technique of front screen projection, which allowed for a highly realistic way to shoot these scenes in a convincing imagery that would ultimately, I think, as I've read at least, impress the Pentagon. So NASA, Air Force, CIA, they were interested in this technique that Kubrick was using, this front, front screen projection, which would actually use a, lot, a bunch of little beads, as I recall, and this would give the ability to project a, a large uh, image onto a, a back screen, right? And this is when you see the apes, that landscape in the background is done through this, this front screen projection method. Now, this was useful for the moon landing, uh, according to Wiedner. And I think that he's probably right about that. Because you look at the moonshots and we see some pretty interesting, pretty obvious parallels between these two styles. And the styles of the Apollo 11 photos compared to what we're supposed to be looking at in terms of the moon. That style is very similar to what you see with, with French screen projection in the first few scenes of 2001 A Space Odyssey. But... The real focus of this sequence is not the apes or the brutal environment, but rather this monolith, this xenophobic new thing, right? This holy other, right? The, the apes are obviously xenophobic. They're afraid of the new when this thing appears. And you think, remember that one little sort of alpha ape that's kind of edging towards it and he's freaking out as he, he's like hesitating to touch it. So 
just got like uh, monkey paranoia. He doesn't know what to do with this big old black thing. And the apes are thrown into a frenzy right when they see this thing. So the monolith is, stands in stark contrast as something both extraterrestrial yet alluring, right? Appealing due to this, due to its newness, its holy other. I mean, holy as in W H O L O Y, not holy. In fact, uh, we might speculate that the monolith is unholy, <laughs> right? Uh, it does seem to have this dark aspect to it, right? So that, as I said, that largest ape, the alpha ape, alpha grape ape, lurches forward to touch the monolith. And as, as a result, we see the development of what Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke appear to conceive of in their mind as, quote, consciousness. Right? So consciousness for them apparently is connected with, co-related with techne. Now, techne in the Greek is the term for artifice or the use of technology, man's ability to create some artifice. If you've read Aristotle, you know that Aristotle talked about natural objects and artificial objects. So if you go out into the world, you find a tree, that's a natural object. An artifice would be a pen, right? Or, uh, you know, any sort of tool that might be created by the artifice of man. Now, it's interesting that it's not just techne that is connected to the rise of consciousness for Kubrick, but rather also warfare, because this crucial scene shows the apes fighting one another, right? And so it's not merely techne, it's technology is an extension of space and power, and thus warfare. So we think about individual beings that are limited in their habitations. We're limited in time and space and insofar as how far we can go, how far we can reach, how far we can jump. A white man can't jump, right? (laughs) All right, well, we're going to take a break real quick. We'll come back with Esoteric Hollywood on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Welcome back. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood on TalkNetwork.com. I'm your wacky, wild, weird host, Jay Dyer from Jay's Analysis. We're getting into monkey business, tomfoolery, and a lot of hullabaloo. So stay with me because we were getting into the weirdness and wackiness of 2001 A Space Odyssey with all these monkeys hopping around, these monkeys, apes, and chimps. And I was telling you about the extension of man's power through technology because we're limited in our, our, the scope of uh, what we can do and what change we can affect in the world through the, the limitations of time and space, right? I'm not able to be in more than one place than I am right now, uh, except for the fact that I'm invading your ears and your ear canals through talking through the internet, which I guess in a way allows me to be in more than one place at one time. 
But the apes and their techne, right, extend themselves through the use of the bone as an, a weapon of warfare. And this mon- the monolith appears at the time of the discovery of the ability to utilize technology in uh, bone bone warfare, right? So if you think about it, think it makes me think of uh, the story of Samson in the book of Judges where Samson's taken out a bunch of, uh, taken out, uh, I think it's a, was it a lion or a leopard with a big jawbone? So uh, the extension of the self through technology is interesting. So you're probably listening to me right now on a cell phone in the cell phone. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Phone is pretty much glued to everyone's hands now. We can't, we can't live without them. We can't set them down. Can't be apart from our beloved cell phones and iPhones. And this is, again, another image of that extension of the cell through technology. And so your selfie stick, your pretty, pretty selfie stick that you're dalliancing about snapping selfies of yourself. That's what this bone signifies in 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> okay, not really. But the the ape uses that bone to bash the skull of, the skull of another ape. And this suggests that radical survival of the fittest mythos in the pure Darwinian sense. Revealing a radical version of this process that process philosophy that finds commonality with notables like Darwin, Haeckel, Ernst Haeckel, and Marx, and even suggests perhaps the dialectical, diabolical determinism of the Eastern Bloc Marxists like Lenin, Mao, and Trotsky, all of whom, by the way, were very influenced by Darwin. And have explicit treatises on the metaphysical presupposition of Marxism being that of perpetual chaos and flux. So if we think back to, if you don't know about philosophy, let me give you a little bit of insight here. If you think back to the ancient Greeks, there was a guy named Heraclitus and Heraclitus taught that uh, everything was in perpetual flux and there was never rest. And so much the same for the notion of Marxism with its dialectics and tension and its process philosophy of everything constantly being broken down constantly being destroyed constantly being opposed these are fundamental presuppositions fundamental starting points for marxist thought and so there's critique in marxist ideology and then there's critique of the critique and then there's critique of the critique of the critique and this is because the ideology of that 
that worldview, that system, is such that there must always be constant tension. And you can see why this would be useful to... Uh, why it would be useful for them to include Darwinism in this, this mindset, because Darwinism is survival of the fittest, constant, perpetual tension, warfare, opposition, and flux at all times. Never rest for the Marxist, Darwinist, revolutionary so-called. But despite the common misconception, there's a little bit more on Marxism here, because I think Kubrick is influenced by Marxism. <clears throat> The, the common misconception that Marxism has no metaphysics. And what we mean by metaphysics in philosophy is the idea of the study of being, study of reality, what is out there, what is reality. And for Marxism, since they're not completely opposed to metaphysics, they actually have a metaphysic of atomistic process philosophy. And so this is similar to what we would see with Newton, right? Newton's atomism. And that process philosophy of old is what's repackaged and presented in Darwinism and Marxism to view man as merely an animal. Man's just a base animal creature. That's why he's coming from these funky monkeys. And it's either through radical collectivism, what we see with Mao or even Che Guevara or someone like that, it's either through radical collectivism or a radical Nietzschean influenced individualism that the new man will emerge, the the Ubermensch. So how are we going to get into the future and survive? And and the, the Darwinians and the Marxists have common cause there for uniting to say that uh, through the process of struggle, 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 constant opposition, never peace, constant warfare, as Trotsky talked about. That is how we will eventually, through blood, much blood, obtain the status of either collective utopianism in the new man viewed in a collective sense or individual utopianism in a Nietzschean sense of the the new man that emerges, transhumanism we think of, for example. So I'm not saying that Kubrick is certainly some committed Marxist, but I'm saying that his films are consistently presenting class warfare, elitism, oligarch deviance and control, and a kind of Darwinian Freudian drives of the id, right? But it's not just Darwinian Freudian materialistic drives of baser desires and the id for Kubrick. Kubrick's also going to include these deeper esoteric, and I think luciferian themes so the key to the universe the monkey to the universe is a big ass black space rock this big old black space rock that kind of looks like an iphone honestly it's like you look at this monolith and you think oh, that actually kind of looks like an iphone <laughs> we're talking about the arrival of the iphone from our space brothers out there I'm joking, obviously. But Kubrick seems to be fully on board with this version of naturalistic process philosophy, as I said. So human consciousness in this view is merely an evolutionary process that emerges from the deus ex machina, an apparent emergent god that is incarnated in symbolic form in the monolith. And that's why the consciousness appears at the 
point of the arrival of the monolith. This black angular cube kind of comes from the gods, right? It's it descends from the gods to initiate us into this new stage of human development. And while the monolith is extraterrestrial, it, it it does appear to be other than what's in the universe. Uh, excuse me, it does not appear to be other than what is the rest of the substance that makes up the universe, right? So it's just another part of the universe. And that's important because this is kind of a pantheistic idea. And this is this sort of notion that everything is God, right? God's not a separate deity, a separate entity outside of time and space, but rather that God or whatever gods might be are merely emergent forces that arise out of the existing primordial ooze or the uh, Jungian forces that, that uh, our psyche gives rise to or whatever conceptions one might have of pantheism the deity or deities in this view are not a part of not apart from the cosmos they are a part of or the totality of the cosmos and so this cube not ice cube but this cube uh, this monolith seems to embody space itself right because and this is my thesis that point line extension and terminus in geometric space right these can combine to create another point line plane and terminus and this is the basics of geometry right that we all learned in grade school and this basic ge geometrical presentation is what gives us three-dimensional space. So this is actually how space works, right, in geometry. In our level of reality, you note that there are, for example, only six possible directions that you can go in, in it from any single point, right? You can only go up, down, left, right, backwards, and forwards. If you grew up in the 80s, that makes me think of up, up, down, down, left, right, BA, select, start, the Nintendo code to Contra, if I recall. <laughs> so maybe the Contra code is actually the secret to all the mysteries of the universe that's actually up, up, down, down, left, right, BA, select, start. Kidding, kidding, kidding. For kids of the 80s there. Now, we're going to take a break here as the music comes in. But when we come back, we're going to continue with the mysteries of... 
Welcome back. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer of jaysanalysis.com. And listen, if you go to jaysanalysis.com, you'll see a tab at the right for Talk Network. If you click through on that link, it'll take you through j.talknetwork.com. And that'll take you to the product store that Mike Adams has facilitated that is really amazing. I mean, there's 500 plus products there. And everything from living a vegan lifestyle to living completely organic, supplements, you name it. There's freeze-dried organics, there's seeds, there's even gift certificates if, if you just want to let other people pick what they want to get. Everything from eye care, immunity, response, toxin elimination, digestion support, everything can be found at j.talknetwork.com. So be sure to purchase your products through that link. And we're talking about Stanley Kubrick and 2001 A Space Odyssey. <clears throat> As I mentioned before, I have an extended analysis of this film at jaysanalysis.com. It's still on the main page if you're looking for it. So we were talking about the six possible directions that you can take. In our dimension, you can only go, at least bodily speaking, up, down, left, right, back, forward. Right? And so that is six. That is a hexagonal form in terms of geometry and that those six planes correspond to six directions right that you can go in time and space and so i think that when we put those together what we, we get obviously a cube right the six possible directions equals a cube <clears throat> and when we look at the monolith that's what we're seeing we're seeing a cube that corresponds to this pythagorean notion or this what we call the platonic solids this idea from long ago in greece that the origins of modern geometry really that you could uh, make sense of what's happening in the real world the phenomenal world ultimately through mathematics and through ideal logical entities like squares triangles points lines planes so that's why I think Kubrick calls it a space odyssey, is that it's an odyssey through and beyond space itself, that final limiting, confining prison upon man, at least from Kubrick's vantage point. So 2001, therefore, is about this dimension, this totality that expresses itself fundamentally in the ontological experiences of time and space. So mention uh, should also be made of Rob Ager, who has written a pretty famous online piece that dissects 2001. And I think, like Wiedner, Ager is insightful, but I don't agree with all of Ager's views. Ager tends to leave out the more esoteric and alchemical aspects that Wiedner does mention, and which I take in a different direction. So <clears throat> Ager points out that the monolith is actually a screen and we know this because Kubrick and Clark actually mention in interviews and in secondary works that I've read on the film and on Kubrick that they originally planned to make the monolith into a TV screen and it was going to actually show the monkeys or like the monkey channel or something right they were going to show the monkeys uh, the monkey learning channel how to do things how to create technology and so forth and Although, you know, this, it's kind of a talisman, right, through which the audience is intended to be taken on a ritual process. That's why I think the monolith blends into the, the 
the screen of the viewer from the viewing audience vantage point. And so in the original screenplay, like I said, it was intended to be a television screen, but they actually decided to, um, that that was a little too limiting. So they wanted to make it more mysterious, a little more unknown. And that's why it's just the black cube slash rectangle slash iPhone. <laughs> so <clears throat> although the monolith was dropped, the seeds of that idea are still present <clears throat> as more than once in 2001, the viewer will see the monolith, as I said, extend, grow and approach the viewer, ultimately encompassing the entire screen. The monolith also suggests the obelisk or the Islamic Kaaba stone that is actually purported to be a meteorite. So if you think about Mecca and the swirling worship that uh, Islamic uh, advocates and uh, Islamic uh, adherents will worship in that, that circular process around the Kaaba in Mecca, that is intent, that's actually a black meteorite stone. Right now, they connect it to various uh, events in the history of Islamic theology, but uh, it's. I think it's worth mentioning that in the pagan tradition, the monolith or monolith or obelisk is actually a divine phallus. And so it's connected to the notion of the generative. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The principle that we might find in something like masonry or sex magic. And so the traditional indigenous conception of the personification of natural reproductive forces in nature is embodied, therefore, in the phallic or vaginal symbol or totem. And I think this key is what Kubrick will later use to link the monolith directly to the womb, to the seminal process, and the birth process, the gestation of the zygote. When we come to Bowman's trippy space trip, when he becomes a star child. The monolith is also consciously, I think, Luciferian, prompting man to this Promethean new Aeon every time that it appears. And it's always connected to the technological advance and the sacrifice that occurs through warfare. And it is, I think, relevant to understand warfare as a kind of sacrifice because it is death uh, at the hands of the state for the supposed furtherance of the designs of the state. Yet generally that is not actually what's happening. Warfare is, as General Smedley Butler said, a racket. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I think 
I'm reminded here of the paleo technology idea too of someone like say Dr. Joseph Farrell who posits a kind of possibility that there was a technology of the gods in ancient times and possibly that man possessed this ancient this not this ancient gnosis from which m- the myths of the golden age descend. So I've written elsewhere concerning that fact uh, that even Homer's Iliad if you think of Achilles shield Achilles' shield in Homer's story is actually kind of a magical screen, believe it or not. And if you've read the Iliad, then you'll know what I'm talking about, because it presents moving images on the shield. And this moving image seems to relay the entire history of the Greek people. Now, this connection is not tangential. Uh, as Homer was recording an oral tradition of Odysseus, and it is Odysseus who will also be the primary literary source for the title and somewhat story to Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. The Odyssey. And especially with later protagonist astronaut Bowman. So Bowman will be a new Odysseus who traversed the underworld and back in the ancient myth. And as Wiedner in his documentary correctly notes, he went on a journey like none other, and this is precisely what we'll see with Bowman. And so with Ager, his analysis leaves out many of these esoteric points, as I said, and focuses more so on the technical and cinematic achievements. But I think in Wiedner, there's a lack of criticism of the process of philosophy and simply adopting Kubrick's alchemical presentation as if it, he were the next so-called Shakespeare. I mean, it's saying a little bit much there. It's a little overboard. But... Uh, you know, th- that's not to say that it's not a great cinematic achievement, obviously. So this juncture, though, it's I think it's worth highlighting again the failures of the neo-Darwinian process philosophy, as I mentioned above. Darwinism, with its philosophical corollary in figures like Hegel, Marx, Whitehead, or Teilhard de Chardin, are simply assumed to be true. It's just a given in our, in our era that... The, the Darwinian process philosophy of these thinkers is just obviously true. It's just dogma. And it's worth noting, too, that Hollywood presentations like 2001, I think, were central in helping to solidify this mythology as as this orthodox, dogmatic given in our modern era. As I've related many times, too, the masses get their worldview from movies and music and not history books, and bureaucrats. And nothing helps to solidify a paradigm in the minds of men than a big blockbuster sci-fi flick, right? So that's what we do here at uh, Esoteric Hollywood. That's what that's what I do at jasonalysis.com is I break down these, these new mythos, the new mythos, the new mythologies that come from Hollywood to give us meaning for our lives, to program us with a new perspective that is intended ultimately to I think break down our traditional classic views of family and relationships to, say, religion or anything like that. Hollywood exists to give us our new narrative, our new gods. So, I don't think there's any question that 2001 is uncritically adopting the Darwinian mythos right from the start, but it's highly illustrative even though it did, because I've argued many times for many years and in many many articles that what you see in 2001 
and figures like someone like Teilhard de Chardin, a major figure in the history of Darwinian thought, is actually a propagandist. And it's an indoctrination program for the perpetual flux process philosophy that I've talked about. Nothing is certain. Nothing is eternal. Nothing is stable. Everything is constantly in flux and will always be so. And that way, we must grow out of any previous notions. So we can never have a stability. We can never have any certainty. There can never be any objective principles, morals, or even things like love. Everything must be in constant evolutionary, materialistic, deterministic, naturalistic flux. And the sad part of this view is that it it's a deception because it's going to present man as on his path to apotheosis. So we're going to go to a break here, but when we come back, we'll discuss this notion of apotheosis. What does that mean and what is it signifying in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey? listening to Esoteric Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer. We're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey and Stanley Kubrick. If you heard previous episode, we were talking about Eyes Wide Shut and the amazing in-depth esoteric alchemical elements in that film. And in 2001, we have a similar presentation of that initiatic ritual alchemical theme. But we left off last time talking about apotheosis. This is the idea of self-salvation, of man being his own God and attaining to divinity on his own, through his own powers or technological, psychological processes. And so some of the problems, though, with this perpetual flux philosophy and its false promise of becoming your own God, as I think most notably the fundamental contradiction that such systems of philosophy are ultimately anti-systemic. What do I mean by that? In other words, I think if you construct an abstract philosophical system composed of what we call invariant conceptual entities or ideas, right? So ideas are things that don't, we don't think, tend to change over time, concepts. So something like 2 plus 2 equals 4 would be a numerical ideational entity, right? It's an actually true existing property or principle, not just in our minds, but also operant in the world. And if one believes that these things are accurately operating in the world, you know, principles like 2 plus 2 equals 4, then the world, even though it does have change and flux, it can't be completely change and flux. 
you see? Because 2 plus 2 will not equal 5 tomorrow. And that principle will not equal 5 in the world tomorrow, right? So even if everyone sort of got together in some big group and said, hey, let's get to, let's just decide by divine decree that 2 plus 2 now equals uh, 5. This would not actually change the fact that 2 plus 2 is 4. And that shows us that 2 plus 2 equaling 4 is an objective operant principle in the world. And what I mean then in tying this into 2001 is that if that is how the world operates, then we can't accept the notion of Heraclitus or of Darwin or of even Stanley Kubrick in this film that everything is in perpetual flux. There have to be some things that are eternally true and grounded in just perpetual being and will never be not the case. You follow me? So it's never going to be the case that 2 plus 2 is 5, and that's just forever. And it was always the case in the past, and it always will be. So, if one believes then that we can simply ask why the supposed concepts like that operate that way, if, if we just ask why things operate that way, then even if we don't have some completely descriptive system of how to understand the world we can still know with certainty that that is at least true. Those kinds of things are true objectively, and therefore not cons- we're not living in constant flux. But if you hold to this process philosophy, then it's immediately made nonsensical and impossible that you could have something like 2 plus 2 equaling 4. I mean, 2 plus 2 could equal 7 billion tomorrow. I mean, who knows? Everything's in constant flux, right? So it's immediately made nonsensical completely contradictory and even if there were a justification for how this might happen then the secondary problem for that would be just as devastating how do the new abstract concepts and apply uh, concepts and ideas apply and stick to objects in the world if the world is just perpetually in constant flux so the dualism of that system i don't think can be reconciled and it's made incoherent really before it can even get off the ground as a viable way to view the world So I've highlighted this elsewhere in a piece dealing with what I call objective unifying metaphysical principles. And you can find this in an article I wrote called The Philosophy of Creation, Darwinian Evolution, and the Absolute. Now this is interesting, though, in the film as we, we really see what's presented as scientism. And scientism is this idea that the empirical scientific process can somehow give us a complete guide to understanding everything in life, right? Everything can be explained by this empirical process of uh, thesis, hypothesis, testing, and so forth, falsification, right? The, the ideas of what it is to do science. Uh, but that is a very limiting one-dimensional view of the world, and so we can't just view the world in that way because if we start with that presupposition of scientism then we've already configured how we're going to view everything else in the world we've already put on blinders to any other possibilities and that's why i write so much against scientism at my site now back to the film what we see then is much more occult presentation of scientism and i think kubrick is insightful here because he shows that scientism isn't just rationalism it actually bridges off into the realm of the occult and the esoteric and the luciferian where it's actually these planetary gods who are leading man through his planetary ascent 
to apotheosis through te- through technology, and this is what we see as Bowman travels through space. As we think of the iconic cyclical wheel symbol, as he's riding around in a in a, a big uh, kind of it's almost like a Ferris wheel, right? But it's the space station as as they wake up out of uh, hypersleep or cryogenic sleep or whatever. No, I'm not saying that ultimately the film is about transhumanism. But that notion is lurking below the celluloid surface, so to speak. The monkey's bone ascends into the air, and Kubrick bypasses that totality of human history right up into the space age, supposedly, where we we see it termed the generally by critics the machine ballet of floating space stations and ships docking onto great wheels that kind of recall the Hindu wheel of time or Ezekiel's living wheel of the cherubim. This cyclical ballet will evoke Nietzsche and Nietzsche's notion of eternal return. And that's why the song that we all know from 2001, that famous piece, is Zarathustra, from Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra. And we will hear that purposefully in this scene. So it's that work, though, Thus spake Zarathustra, where Nietzsche presents his doctrine of eternal return. And this is the older pagan idea from the Greeks, even, that history is just in an eternal state of of recurrence, eternal recurrence, eternal return. So everything that's happening will happen and will always happen forever and ever and ever and ever. And so the doctrine of eternal return is a pre-Christian notion, a pre-Western notion, a pre-Judaic notion, that history is just endless cycles destined to repeat with fatalistic certainty. And that's why Eastern, Far Eastern religions utilized the wheel, this wheel of time, to signify that eternal process from which one must escape through things like meditation. So in that view, time and space are traps. They're prisons for man. We think of Plato and his famous dictum, Soma Sema, that the soul, the body is the prison of the soul. Now, is Kubrick saying that man has already experienced all that he has experienced on this karmic wheel of time and that the destiny of the gods mandates this process that will culminate in a transmigration of souls or reincarnation that results in the star child that is now the god of its own cosmos? Is it merely a projection of its own psyche? Is the universe just a projection of star child psyche? I think this is a possible reading of what Starchild is, as well as the Genesis sequence at the close of the film, where the galaxies and God himself becomes, as I said, merely this deistic entity that's subject to the temporal alterations of flux as the rest of the universe undergoes. While this is likely, I'll also give, I think, another possible reading as we continue here. Um, now, when they're on the station, we learn that the mysterious loss of communications on the moon is through, and uh, it's done through a nod to Cold War dialectics that Kubrick seems to extend into the future. So, curiously, the nation states are not eliminated. So, it's not a world government scenario like we might expect, because the U.S. and Russia are still dominant players in geopolitics. And this suggests that Kubrick didn't conceive of the future as one as in, where international communism or something like that dominated. 
and proceeded to then eliminate, say, nation-states. So the geopolitical chess game of nations is still is still going on. It's, in fact, extended into the galaxy. So the U.S. base at Clavius on the moon has suddenly gone dark in terms of communication. And so as a cover story, the U.S. government has concocted its old favorite, the bio-release pandemic, right? The favorite fear porn hype of the government authorities, the Ebola, Ebola, which leads to quarantine on Clavius. So in actuality, the lunar explorers have uncovered the monolith, and this time it's submerged intentionally for the precise time, I think, that, that man would advance in his technology to reach the moon and thus discover the monolith signal that's being transmitted to Jupiter. This is where we think of that uh, enigmatic and annoying, uh, dissettling, unsettling, displeasant scene where the astronauts are uh, are hearing all these loud buzzes and and it sounds like a it's almost kind of a de- demonic cacophony of buzzing, right? When the the astronauts are walking around the monolith that they found on the moon, and it's, I think it's intended to be dis- put, set one at disease. On purpose, and so as we watch these elegant, gradual movements of the ships, you know we're inclined to almost think of it in a sexual way, and this is contrasted with that harsh banshee-like sound that the astronauts will encounter on the moon. So on the space station, everything's very subtle, everything's very ordered, everything's very quiet, serene, and it's contrasted with this intense, harsh. You know, almost screech of demonic cacophony when when the astronauts touch the monolith. So this is the second period in man's history where he's encountered and touched the monolith. You're listening to Esther Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer. Just me and you guys tonight flying solo. We're thinking about flying solo like Han Solo. We're thinking about Stanley Kubrick's monumental film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. We were discussing the the ships, their elegant movements, and it contrasted that, and contrasting that with the cacophony of demonic squeals on the moon when the astronauts find the monolith. And I think that this, as we watch the gradual elegant movements of the ships in these scenes, we're inclined to think of it in kind of a sexual way, a component of extension 
a, a component of opening and entrance and release, especially as the ships interact with and dock inside one another. And of course, one of those ships is very phallic. And I think this is supposed to indicate in the film's narrative the evolutionary process of man as he's ever been in a dialectic of war and sex. And sex is a, is a kind of savage war, especially for my ex-girlfriends. I'll tell you that. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, anyway, man has seeded his offspring, right? And now man will begin to extend his member into space, his progeny. And he will therefore seed the galaxy. And so Techne is this extender for this endeavor once again, providing... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The ship and the means by which man may project himself further into space in his space odyssey. Right? Not just a bedroom odyssey, but <laughs> a space odyssey. As the ship ejects, ejects the pod carrying, you know, the astronauts and bowmen, we're given a clear example, again, of the phallic insemination. And uh, watchful, eyeful students of Kubert will recall his frequent, frequent references in his films to the bodily fluids. Bodily fluids, right? And I mentioned this in Eyes Wide Shut, and it comes up, of course, in Dr. Strangelove in a very comedic sense. So the astronauts inspect this monolith, and we hear that demonic cacophony, and it harmonizes to produce a kind of buzzing reminiscent of bees. So man's next stage in his evolutionary ascent is once again related to this weird cube and the touching of this dark divine monolith, which emits that sound, that pitch, high-pitched frequency. And this is the transmission that is being beamed at or from, I can't recall, at or from Jupiter. And so this is supposed to be a sign to the astronauts that the next step is to go towards Jupiter, towards Jove. And so we are, I think, supposed to connect the monolith to these higher frequencies and higher spheres in the celestial realm. And those frequencies, those spheres in classical and medieval philosophy and theology would vibrate and they would be related to sounds and notes on the music scale. Even all the way up until the time of Isaac Newton, this was believed to be the case. And if you've ever studied the trivium or the quadrivium of classical pedagogy, you'll know that the notes of the musical scale are supposed to be associated with the celestial spheres and this would be the layers the the regions of the stellar heavens that the different planets uh, orbit and the star the houses of the zodiac and so forth where they have their their place so the moon monolith uh, is vibrating this frequency that is connected to jupiter and so it's intent on leading man that way as it's a kind of mile marker right in the in the galaxy and leading man to his next location as the planets once again align 
in this sequence to reveal an uncapped pyramid. Now, this is an important imagery that we see where from the bottom of the monolith, Kubrick has the camera stationed to where the imagery of the uh, stellar alignment forms this uh, all-seeing eye almost above above the pyramid. And so the, the light, especially in the opening sequence of the film, is at the top of that uncapped pyramid, and that's done on purpose. So then we move to the notion of the uncapped pyramid as this alchemical notion, this alchemical idea that signifies a lack of completion in the so-called great work of the alchemist. This was the grand plan to transmute base matter into gold, the philosopher's stone, which signifies the inner journey of the psyche in its ascent back to God or the soul's ascent back to the one in Platonism or Neoplatonism or the after-death journey of the Gnostics through the planetary spheres. So in a macro sense, the great work of this transformation of the entire universe into this omega point of Teilhard de Chardin, this final telos, or of someone like Hegel, where the totality of reality becomes conscious of itself as conscious, to use Hegelian terms. This then transmutes innate inanimate, in, inanimate matter into being merged with the psyche and thus realizing its own potentiality and its own God in process, right? And so from here, we can see exactly how we would be leading up to Starchild. Whereas the apes, early supposed man, were highly limited and caged and bound by the forces of nature, time, and space in a very extreme way, in the space age, man has overcome gravity. And so he's able to flit and float about the universe no longer hindered by the limitations of hunger resources and uh, and mass right volume and bodily mass this is the middle stage of man's gradual ascent out of the cage or the box the box of time and space the monolith is a box it's also kind of a kind of a um almost like a grave right like a coffin right so the monolith has this coffin aspect to it i think which is precisely what it signifies in the notion of or in the final scene where bowman as he's dying kind of just goes into the monolith and for, so for kubrick the evolutionary ascent is premised on this presupposition of perpetual progress through technology in overcoming the limitations of time, space, and body. Hunger is gone, gravity is gone, and through the cryogenic sleep pods, time is beginning to be mastered. And this is where enters our, our infamous nemesis HAL 9000. Yes, the vicious, devious AI bot. And this is where we're going to start edging on the secret space program and the notions of transhumanism and Skynet and the AI takeover and control grid of the Internet of Things of our planet. Now, Hal is spoken of as a central nervous system for this great phallic ship 
and it's literally spoken of as a ship, a body for how. And this is humanity's latest, greatest artificial intelligence system, the HAL 9000. And if you think back to the most notable and memorable scenes of this film, you will think of Dave, Dave, Dave. <laughs> so HAL is positioned to accompany the astronauts on their secret mission. And it is here that Kubrick hints at transhumanism, right? For it's precisely through technology all along that man has been transcending his limitations, as we've said. So Hal is spoken of and self-describes himself as the perfect robot, the perfect free-from-error being. This will be the final colossal challenge of man to overcome man himself embodied in his highest achievement to date, the superhuman AI Skynet system, whose logic may actually mean the deleting of man as man, as the error. So it is my contention here that the real secret space program, of which NASA is kind of this front piece, this facade, is revealed in its fullness here by Kubrick, who with the NASA and intelligence agencies on his side working with this project, he was able to have that sort of insider view. And Vivian, his daughter, has even said in interviews that he was the CIA was, was there kind of aiding and helping this whole time. So the real secret space program then is centered around advanced AI, this is my thesis, as well as being the vehicle by which man's extension into the void might actually be accomplished since AI is not subject to the limitations of body, age, the need for food and sustenance, human necessities, and so forth. A self-repairing AI can also travel indefinitely and potentially perform its own repairs as long as it has some conceivable energy source. Indeed, entire journeys and missions could be conceived of as not even needing human travelers and thus reducing the dangers of the loss of life, as well as the benefit of obtaining all of the same data. And uh, there's a good lecture that touches on some of where I get my thesis by Dr. Joseph Farrell, where he explains at the Secret Space Program of 2014 the intricate construction of this elaborate satellite network that will be Skynet. And in my estimation, it's that Skynet satellite grid that's going to be constructed to surveil the entire planet under this Internet of Things, the nightmare that they call smart cities and the smart grid. Something that we will be dealing with a lot in film at Esoteric Hollywood. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back as we delve deeper and deeper into infinity and the beyond.
welcome back. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer of Jay'sAnalysis.com. You're listening on TalkNetwork.com. If you like the reviews you're hearing, go to Jay'sAnalysis.com and check out my hundreds of articles where I analyze film, philosophy, geopolitics, and esoterica. So we were talking about Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey and how Kubrick foresaw correctly, I think, this potential showdown between man and machine and he masterfully presents this aspect of the narrative as a race to the death, really. We are not in the era when artificial intelligence can begin to suppress the human intellect. Excuse me, we are actually in the era when uh, AI can actually surpass the human intellect in some tasks. Nothing near the brain itself in terms of how... Well, actually, the brain is the universe's greatest supercomputer to date, the human brain. But while I think AI will not be ever conscious or self-aware as it as it's a philosophical impossibility, but it may be programmed to perfectly mimic and down the road possibly be programmed to kill or battle mankind. And this is what we have to be concerned about as humans going into the AI age. This is the very thesis that Kubrick lays out in this epic contest between Bowman and Howe where human, human history actually hangs kind of on a game of wits with how ultimately, of course, losing. It should be noted that Kubrick is overall, I think, positive in his assessment, and at least not anti-human, as we might expect establishment propaganda to be. So, you know, man does not lose in this confrontation with his highest weapon, his own mind mirrored into a machine. That is how. But in fact, he overcomes it, uh, or specifically, I should say, Bowman does. You know, Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke, who co-wrote this with Kubrick, was reported to have said, quote, It may be that our role on this planet is not to worship God, but rather to create him, as he wrote at length about in his story, The Final Query. And as the co-screenplay writer, Clark allowed significant changes to the script by Kubrick, as I mentioned earlier with the TV screen monolith. Another significant change, though, is the ending, where Starchild uses a satellite system above the Earth to nuke the planet, thus insinuating the accusation that Hal said about man being an error to be correct. So mankind must thus be sacrificed, according to Clark, and nuked to allow for the apotheosis of the elite. Commenting on the evolutionary process and his conception of theology, Kubrick stated in unison with Clark, what I'm going to read, I will say that the concept of God is at the heart of 2001, but not any traditional anthropomorphic image of God. I don't believe in any of Earth's monotheistic religions. This is Kubrick. But I do believe that one can construct an intriguing scientific definition of God. Once you accept that there are approximately 100 billion stars in the galaxy, and that each star is a life-giving sun, and that there are approximately 100 billion galaxies in the visible universe, given a planet in a stable orbit, not too hot or too cold after billions of years, a chance of chemical reactions might create humans or something like it, right? 
So there's Kubrick giving his analysis there. He says he goes on to say it's reasonable to assume assume alien life and so forth, and the potentiality for their limitless intelligence, the un- ungraspable by humans, right? So the over the aeons of Darwinian evolution, supposedly we come to the conclusion that oh, aliens—that's just obvious. So there's got to be aliens because of aeons of evolution, and if it happened here, it had to have happened somewhere else. But I think it's more important to point this out as propaganda, as psyops, right? That's why the CIA and NASA and the Air Force are involved in this project with Kubrick and taking such an interest in his films. Perhaps a darker deal was made that uh, you'll get usage of the million-dollar lens for your film, Barry Lyndon, Mr. Kubrick, as long as you'll do things the way we say. It also makes me think of Richard Dawkins and his new atheist cult, where the classical notions of God are conceived of as silly, but E.T. and Mork and Mindy were more rational, supposedly. So even though the process philosophy that undergirds the entire presupposition of this worldview is completely contradictory, as I showed before, and it allows for no possibility of a coherent metaphysic, the flame of the alien gospel burns strong in the superior intellects of the Dawkinites, right? Panspermia. This is why Bowman transcends time and space as he reaches Jupiter following the monolith's location. The conjunction of sun and moon, connected to the conjunction of male and female, in the so-called Vesica Pisces of uh, Freemasonry or the esoteric hermetic tradition of the West, wherein we are given a more Masonico-alchemical transformation, impelling the logic of the world-historical Hegelian cunning toward godhood. What do I mean by that? Well, the world-historical is the idea of these zeitgeist, of these ages, these aeons, these spirits that, that impel a certain age. We think of the Bronze Age or, or the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment. Certain thinkers and historians would characterize those as world historical periods where there was a certain transition in the thought of the mass, right? And for the philosopher Hegel, uh, the German philosopher Hegel, he saw this as something being guided by an intelligence, what he called the cunning of history. And any time a civilization was at the point of collapse, the owl would take flight, he would say. He would use this Minerval owl imagery of the the owl, the cunning of wisdom, taking flight. As it was leaving a civilization which descended into degeneration, corruption, and chaos. What would would Hegel say about modern America? Well, (laughs) he would say that owl uh, hit the road a long time ago, buddy. Western civilization is uh, more like the Tootsie Pop Owl <laughs> than it is the Minerval Owl of Hegelian wisdom. So this is why, once again, Bowman is shown in the pod, ejecting from the phallic shaft of the ship towards this black void of the monolith. The transcendence sequence, then, at the end, where, you know, the famous sequence of Bowman going into this almost acid trip, right? It's very trippy. It reminds one of an LSD trip, where Bowman's mind is just overloaded with this Illumination, And this signifies his reaching the eye or the capstone of the pyramid sequence, which we are 
which we're witnessing due to these planetary alignments, right? So we, we witnessed the pyramid before, right? With the sun shining at the top of the pyramid. So the capstone is uncapped, right? And if we look at this sequence, the way that it's constructed with perspective, it's constructed like pyramids, right? Extending into the, the camera perspective of the audience, and at the center of the screen is where everything projects out. And it's it's all a bunch of scenes of light, geometric formations. Remind you, it's something like you would see in Disney's Tron, right? And so it's almost as if Bowman is kind of riding in a computer information highway of packets of information on, through a motherboard. Something like audiences would see a few years later, filmgoers in Disney's Tron. And this is, I think... The color spectrum, the planes, the pyramidal lines, the, the forms that emerge, this is intended to give us the suspicion that perhaps the universe itself is like AI, right? Are we living in this kind of constructed hologram? Are we living in a big computer program, the matrix? That's what I'm saying, right? So I'm, I think there's a kind of a matrix element to 2001 a space odyssey right and so this is where we get to that allegory of the cave notion from plato in his republic where we're trapped in this this confining space and it's about getting out of these control control structures not just with government but actually our whole reality and that's what kubrick's getting at and that's what the matrix would later get at right so bowman sees this expanding this expanse before him of these two flat planes that emerge from a central vantage point from which these pyramids and, and geometric forms fly at him, right? So it's like a nightmare Disney ride on acid or something, like a roller coaster with LSD, which sounds, sounds like a nightmare. And I think it's supposed to be the information light grid that is the fabric of reality itself. So this matrix-like structure that is what is the process of crossing the abyss for Bowman, this void? It suggests both Platonic solids and Pythagorean mysteries, as well as I said, that matrix-like structure of our reality that particle physicists like uh, Werner Heisenberg even say are kind of true. So we're going to take a break, but when we get back, we're getting back to where we'll talk again about the matrix and 2001 Space Odyssey on Esoteric Hollywood with Jay Dyer.
listening to Esoteric Hollywood. I'm your host, Jay Dyer. Jaysanalysis.com is the website. Definitely what you need to go check out if you want to read about geopolitics, philosophy, esoterica, and film. We were talking about Werner Heisenberg and how he mentioned in a famous lecture that his particle physics research showed him that the lowest level of reality we actually see geometric forms, Platonic Pythagorean forms. And I was relating this to the scene in 2001 A Space Odyssey towards the end where the astronaut Bowman is being projected across the void into infinity and beyond. And he sees all these psychedelic, uh, the psychedelic light show, right? Pink Floyd in space or something, right? So this matrix-like structure of the abyss or the void suggests the platonic solids, the Pythagorean mysteries. And this is where Bowman's going to enter a stargate. So Bowman, like Odysseus, has reached the furthest point away from home. And like the hero of Greek legend, he will now traverse the abyss to the underworld or to the beyond, which bridges both the inner abyss, abyss and the outer abyss through the unifying fabric of the psyche, to quote Carl Jung there. Bowman has thus entered the stargate, and it's this stargate that takes him outside of the bounds of time and space. The crucial key other analyses have missed here are the seven diamond cubes that appear after the sequence of the formless colors and lines. The fabric and stuff of reality, a formless void of prima materia, is shapeless and meaningless until given form, and once the seven diamonds appear, form is reintroduced to give order to this chaos. Bowman becomes a new grand architect as he sees new galactic images of what appear to be sperm, eggs, and wombs galaxies forming, gashead nebulas spiraling. The seven diamonds are the planetary rulers of classic celestial theology. The gods of the planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, etc., who have been directing man through their course of ascent through the heavens to Jupiter and beyond to the abyss, a notion very prevalent in esoteric and occult and hermetic and shamanic practices. And this leads up to a particularly dangerous dangerous stage of initiation where before the heights of supposed illumination occur, a dark night of the soul or psyche occurs in this passing of the void. Here Bowman is then elevated to the celestial pantheon as he sees himself appear in a bizarre Louis XVI style room. Keep in mind also that in Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, the aliens of Clarke's story are viciously deceptive analogs for gods or demons who do not come in peace. The imagery of Bowman's transcending is thus clearly identified as a kind of cosmic sex magic where a universal sexual generative principle where Bowman himself is the seed of the new coming creation, the new genesis of a new world where a new mankind will be made in Bowman's own macrocosmic image. Those seven planetary diamonds or cubes thus represent the gods giving form to encote and prima materia.
witnessing himself then as in a mirror, highlighting again that platonic theme. Bowman sees a three-stage process of himself that mirrors the three-stage process of humanity in the film. From ape to space to transcendence, matching up to young Bowman, aged Bowman, and decaying, dying Bowman. Aged Bowman is eating his dinner and breaking the glass, which signifies the final obstacle and limitation to overcome, that of death. This is why Bowman, when he arrives, sees architecture and furniture related to the body, specifically. He sees a sink, chairs, bed, food. And this is where bodily limitation is then that final stage of deification. And we can thus read the monolith itself as maybe even intentionally an advanced AI, the outer reaches of this matrix-like structure of our reality. As Bowman then seems to be placed in a kind of alien lab, or another cage, if you will, for testing, it's as if the hotel is run by (laughs) an advanced AI god service that's toying with him. If the aliens are uh, an advanced AI, it would explain why the real mission of the Jupiter exploration was hidden from Bowman and his crew until it was triggered when Hal was shut down by Bowman ripping out the floppy disks from Hal's innards. The eye is thus revealed as Bowman reached the cap in his crossing the void. That's why the eye is shown. This is his illumination through the Stargate. Now, I presented this thesis in my analysis of Christopher Nolan's tribute film, Interstellar, and we will do in the future an entire show probably on Interstellar as well. And in that film, the AI is actually leading man all along across his course towards the process of salvation from mass disaster. Now, I'm not saying that the thesis is certain, but I'm just posting it as a possibility. It's as if the the hotel room were this final stage of uh, exiting Plato's cave. So I have I've not seen anyone really propose this thesis, but that is pretty much the exact message that Clark presents in his later sequel to 2001, called 3001, where God is an advanced AI that we actually created a long time ago, and even though its own self-advancing and self-realization is what created its own consciousness. It's a computer-generated world, thus, that was created from this seminal AI. Again, thinking back to that eternal recurrence, right? It's all occurred before. And so, in that world, humans are like Neo. So, Bowman breaks free of Plato's cave, like Neo does in the Matrix, to cheat death and rise to a rebirth amongst the stars, amongst the gods. And this process thus repeats itself in eternal return with a new genesis. If not, if that's not the case, then Bowman simply evolves and aliens are just showing him the way and you know they, they deify him or something or he just achieves his own deification. But either way, it's a cyclical process of a time-bound emergent deity arising from within the cosmos itself and not an eternal deity who alone subsists outside of time and space and creates things ex nihilo or out of nothing. 
we are reminded at this juncture of the promise of the serpent in the garden, right? Where Kubrick is fond of this Genesis imagery where there's an apotheosis is promised through gnosis or knowledge by the serpent to Adam and Eve. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch of it, lest you die. The serpent replied, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3. Now, I think that if we look back to, say, ancient religion, ancient theology and philosophy, what the serpent is proposing in the garden there is what we might call Gnosticism, and what would later be an early Christian heresy in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries of of uh, the history of the church and Gnosticism was variant in its forms. It had all kinds of incarnations, but one of those incarnations was the idea of the worship of the, the idea of the worship of the serpent and the worship of the serpent then for certain Gnostic sects would give one this potential for so-called illumination. This is actually what some of these early Gnostic sects taught taught. Uh, the proponent of Gnosticism, Elaine Pagels, has outlined this in her somewhat noted book, uh, The History of, of the Gnostic Gospels, which were uh, discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, uh, I think about a century ago. Now, <clears throat> the Gnostic texts, rather than present this out- exterior salvation of man from God or from redemption through Christ or something like that it presents rather an inner psychological transformation of salvation through inner spark of deity that then sort of flowers forth into apotheosis and you could see why this would then be read into transhumanism and in kind of a Promethean sense where man transcends his limitations through his own inner spark that consciousness that the monolith triggered right when it arrived to blow the minds of the monkeys at the beginning of the film. And that's what we're looking at here with Gnosticism in relationship to 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's very much a presentation of the um, self-salvation of man through his own inner gnosis. And I always like to point out that it's a rehashing of what the serpent told Eve in the garden. You will know good and evil. You won't die. And it's that tasting of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that led to, unfortunately, the demise of Adam and Eve in their physical sense, right? They brought about bodily death and spiritual death for those that believe the biblical narrative. And, of course, that's where, in Christian theology, the redemption comes later. But, regardless, we can see this tradition, in a way, that goes all the way back possibly to the garden or however you conceive of the Genesis narrative to be, where man creates his own salvation. Uh, And that's what Kubrick is getting at with that Genesis imagery at the end of the film, where man creates, again, his own salvation as Starchild, the newly born God and creator of the universe. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood. 
Final segment here of Esoteric Hollywood, you're listening to Jay Dyer give his breakdown of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and this is based on the many, many film reviews and analyses I've done at jasonanalysis.com. If you're looking for something beyond Roger Ebert or beyond Peter Travers and Rolling Stone, you can go to jasonanalysis.com where I get far deeper down the rabbit hole than those guys, right? Real film analysis tying in geopolitics, philosophy, religion, esoterica, you name it. And in, in this final addendum, I guess I'd like to reflect a little more on the relationship of science fiction and film to how we are kind of programmed, particularly the Darwinian mythos and how well it ties into the alien mythos. And so we, you know, we tend to think of science fiction, modern science and what's called scientism and religion as things that are disparate, distinct, separate subjects with, you know, really minimal connection between them. And when we consider them philosophically, however, a radically different perspective, I think, begins to take shape where the, the underlying presuppositions of all three move closer and closer. Considering the weaponization of culture from the vantage point of the establishment, you know, under the rubrics of full spectrum dominance, all three are crucial cultural drivers that disseminate a prepackaged worldview to its consumers. So whether it's Isaac Asimov fans, Richard Dawkinites, or the followers of L. Ron Hubbard, all have tremendous power to shape, mold, and convert the perspectives of their respective flocks towards some desired end. Is my thesis that the thesis of the end goal of all three in our age of transitions is ultimately to merge into a singular monoculture globo worldview where everything like everything I've just mentioned will function as a kind of new religious mythology, uh, sort of homogenized into one. And from the earliest days of what we know as quote, science fiction in figures like Jules Verne or H.G. Wells, the notion, the belief that science was the means by which man could project his imagination to, into the future was seen, I think, to be a useful tool of statecraft. So particularly with Wells, we can see a figure who stated goals of Fabian socialism would bleed through many of his more notable works with a sort of beaming effulgence, really. Wells supposedly sought the eradication of that speculative monetary system, which I think gave him some credence amongst leftists as a as a socialist, right? And he mentions this at the close of his famous work, The Outlines of History. And through his fiction, he foretold this bright utopian era of technological advance where reason would be crowned king in works like The Time Machine. Notions of eugenics play a central role in conditioning the coming ages, that the rise of the vulgar class would have to be controlled and managed by some sort of technological grid. In works like Wars War of the Worlds, the alien invasion myth exploded as even many of the academic class bought into the notion that civilizations inhabited places like Mars. Hollywood soon jumped on board, and after the Orson Welles fiasco of the famous broadcast through radio of the War of the Worlds scenario, there would issue nonstop flow from the wells of Hollywood uh, of all things alien, right? UFO, galactic, everything. It just it just ex 
went orgasmic, right? New luminaries came forth, such as Burroughs, uh, Heinlein, uh, George Herbert, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, William Gibson, and many more would continue to chip in to produce classics in both print and screen incarnations. From the vantage point of propaganda, the state found this alien mythos to be quite a useful tool, especially for piling on more and more external invasion threat scenarios as, a, as it fascinated mass consumers more and more, especially during wartime. You could see how the notion of the alien invasion myth could be used to propagandize the, the mass audience of the threat of the foreign invasion, invaders right from Earth, not, not from Mars, although both would be used. So if I'm thinking about the danger of, say, the Nazi regime or the Soviets, you know, you could see how a whole bunch of fictional presentations of the fear of uh, an invading external force could be pumped out to the mass-consuming entertainment population. Uh, Entertainment-consuming population that would then accept the dictates of the state uh, concerning the dangers of something like Nazism or Sovietism, World War II, and then Vietnam, and so forth and so on. From the from the 70s and 80s, we get into this era of, you know, the right after the supposed Apollo 11 mission, we see things like Close Encounters, the Star Wars trilogy, Moonraker, E.T., and this really crystallized the alien mythos in the minds of the public as fact far more than any scientific claims of panspermia had prior of, of prior note. It's precisely with panspermia, as I mentioned earlier, which kind of does come up in 2001 in an oblique way. And as I've remarked many times, we can see the infusion of the alien mythos into the so-called empirical science of scientism. Uh, but the absurdity here becomes manifest, I think, by definition. No one has ever observed panspermia. It's merely an outlandish theory, a, a science fiction theory at that. And myself, as a film buff, uh, one thing is undeniably certain, and that's that there's no end to these <laughs> alien stories. Uh, yet there's another alien story, I think, that's also crammed down our throats as i hinted that arises contemporary with science fiction and that's darwinism so purporting to be a strictly natural quote-unquote explanation of the origins of life and species adaptation or change over time the more one delves into the ideological origins of darwinian theory the clearer it is seen to be linked with british freemasonry and ancient mythology and less and less does it appear to be quote scientific as it seems to sound more and more like an Orson Welles tale. Having been redefined and elastically stretched to encompass everything from floor polish to toenails, literally everything is purported to be, quote, proof of Darwinian evolution, despite no transitionary fossils, and yet we should be swimming in endless piles of billions of dead transition creature, creaturely remain, right? Remains, Darwinism is the dominant religious perspective of our day, with all reality coming under its aegis as a product of endless material flux and chaos. And concurrent with this grand narrative explanation is another grand narrative, and that's science fiction. 
So while Darwinism kind of looks at the past, science fiction is distinctly future-oriented. And quite often the two meld together and are linked, especially with the alien myth. I mean, you just heard the quote I gave in the last segment from Kubrick talking about why he believes in aliens. And a central tenet, central starting point for why aliens is rational is, as Kubrick said, aeons and aeons of evolutionary process. Why well, it's just obvious that, you know, 4.5 billion years of this solar system, uh, this universe, it would have, if it took that long to form, then by an unsubstantiated non-empirical presupposition, we can surely also propose that there's life that was or has evolved on Zeta Reticuli. And since we're taking billions of years for granted here, it's likely that they evolved to be far more advanced than humans are presently. Hell, they could have even seeded us here on Earth, right? Back to panspermia. So we stop for a moment and think about how much that starts to sound like science fiction. I think we begin to realize that these are actually manufactured ideologies. And isn't that ironic? Because that's the very thing that the Darwinian, new atheist, Richard Dawkins type person will accuse anybody who has a religious view of, of saying. If you're religious, well, that's a concocted mythology. Now, wait a minute. This is actually sounding more and more like Darwinism is a concocted mythology. So stop for a moment and think about how much we take for granted in this regard. We just accept these things. We accept these dogmas without actually questioning the presuppositions that undergird them. And if we think about the Darwinian definition of what, quote, science is, observable facts to support or negate a theory, we begin to see how creative they are in their in their speculations in much the same way that uh, Boba Fett or Mork and Mindy are creative fictions. They're not real. They're the postulation that primordial muck was struck by lightning and gave birth to predetermined amoebas, fish, and then whales. And, you know, this then gave rise to earthbound uh, mammals and so forth that at some point emerged from watery existence. None, no one has observed that. And much like science fiction, it's a story that men choose to believe as a substitute, kind of like a child dons a Superman costume and bounces off the couch pretending to fly. So we can see a window into this melding process and examples of UFO cults, right? Like the Raelians or Scientology or something like that. I think once Darwin and the empiricists had supposed that they banished metaphysics and that the past was assumed to be explained on natural grounds, from there the future needed some kind of hope, and that's where we can bring in the science fiction writers. And this is the role the psyop scions of science fiction play, to play with reality and re rewrite reality as a play of reality. And this is the function of our new saints, St. Darwin and St. Saint H.G. Saint Wells, or St. Orson Wells as well, as well, as well, as well. Prophets and sages of the new dawn intent on exterminating man, as Holy Father Bertrand Russell lovingly said. This is the age of the Space Brother elites intent on bringing us to childhood's end. And it's just science, right? It's just a fact. You're listening to Esoteric Hollywood on TalkNetwork.com. If you want to check out all the excellent supplements and products at TalkNetwork.com.